Give us your Holy Spirit that we would see Jesus, that we would know more of him and know what it is to follow him and to love him and obey him. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Hear now God's word, Luke chapter 20, beginning in verse 41. But he, that is Jesus, said to them, How can they say that the Christ is David's son? For David himself says in the book of Psalms, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. David thus calls him Lord, so how is he his son? And in the hearing of all the people, he said to his disciples, Beware of the scribes like to walk around in long robes and love greetings in the marketplaces and the best seats in the synagogues and the places of honor at feasts, who devour widows' houses and for a pretense make long prayers. They will receive the greater condemnation. Jesus looked up and saw the rich putting their gifts into the offering box, and he saw a poor widow put in two small copper coins. And he said, truly, I tell you, this poor widow has put in more than all of them. For they all contributed out of their abundance, but she out of her poverty has put in all she had to live on. Thus far, uh, the reading of God's holy and inerrant word. May he bless it as we study together today. Uh, you're aware that there are some people, uh, some people who believe anything they see on the internet. Uh, enter into that space and into that gullibility, uh, fakeavacation.com. Fakeavacation.com is uh, sadly an actual website uh, which offers what appears to be an actual service. The service they offer is uh, that of providing customers with photoshopped images of vacations they never actually took. The process is pretty straightforward. You uh, take some pictures of yourself. You might want to put on your vacation clothes first, and then you send those pictures in uh, to the service. You pick your vacation destination of your dreams, and then for the low, low price of $30, they superimpose your picture in front of the popular landmarks. They'll put you uh, in your swimming trunks on a white sand beach somewhere. Uh, presumably, the pictures are intended to help people project a better image on social media. The company tagline on the website says they offer to help you make your friends envious of where you were and have them thinking of being where you are. And to that end, the service comes with tips on how to take those pictures to make them uh, look uh, more, uh, more realistic. And uh, it also comes with some local facts about the place you didn't go so that you can sell your story about being there. Now, as I was, uh, we'll call it researching, uh, <laughs> checking out this website, uh, and as I was looking at some of the sample pictures that they offer to their clients, I couldn't help but think that maybe I was the one who was being fooled. Uh, maybe the website itself is a hoax, and there's somebody sitting behind a server somewhere just chuckling to himself that there are people foolish enough to think that there is a market for fake vacation photos. Uh, and the moral of the story, I think, is that it's hard to tell sometimes. It's hard to know if what I'm seeing is the real thing or uh, if there's something more behind the scenes. And this is the challenge for us in spiritual terms. This is the challenge for us in Luke's gospel in this passage. It's a challenge to realize that often when it comes to spiritual realities, there's more going on than what we can see with our eyes. There are hypocrites 
in the church who often appear as faithful guides for God's people. There are generous, gracious, sacrificial uh, givers in the church who uh, from the outside appear as pretty insignificant by the world's standards. And even Jesus, even uh, there's more to him than human eyes could see in his ministry. And in order to know the truth of who he is, in order to know what it means uh, to follow him, we need to see beyond just the outward appearance. Now, when it comes to Jesus, this means that we need to see that the Messiah is more than an earthly king. That's our first point today, that the Messiah is more than an earthly king. Now, after Jesus uh, answers every question, every challenge from the religious leaders, he counters with a question of his own. How can they say that the Christ is David's son? Now, Jesus' question begins with a premise that everyone already agreed upon. It's the fact that when the Messiah comes, he's going to be the physical descendant of David. This is Old Testament expectation 101. They knew. Uh, You could find it in the Psalms. You could find it in in the prophets. You could find it all throughout the history of God's work with his people. They knew of all the things that they should be looking for in the Messiah, the one who would deliver them. They were looking for a descendant of David. They were waiting for that dry stump of Jesse to shoot forth uh, a new shoot. They were waiting in the language of Isaiah 9 for a son to be born, a child to be given, to sit on the throne of David and over his kingdom, to establish it and uphold it with justice and righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. So the first thing that all Jews knew about the Messiah when he shows up, he's going to be the son of David. And Luke hasn't shied away from this idea. You remember as we've been going through now 21 chapters of Luke's gospel from Uh, from the witness of Zechariah, from the words of Gabriel, from the words of blind Bartimaeus outside of of Jericho. Over and over again, Luke is putting this truth before our eyes that that Jesus is bone of David's bone and flesh of David's flesh. He is the rightful legal heir to God's covenant with the son of Jesse. And so everybody agreed with that, and Jesus agreed with that, but his question presses a little bit deeper. He says, how can the Christ be David's son when David himself calls him Lord? Now that's a title that no Jewish father or grandfather would dream of applying to their son, no matter how great they would turn out to be. You see, Israelite society had it uh, different than us. We perhaps get it backwards. We tend to think that uh, every generation behind us is is foolish, and we're the ones, and wisdom will die with us. Whereas the Israelites believed that the generations who came before them were wiser and generally more trustworthy than their own. They looked back to these, as we saw, even as, uh, I don't know if you've been wondering, as we've been reading through these genealogies in Nehemiah, why are there so many names in the Bible? Because they looked back to those who came before, those who blazed trails in the faith before them. They, They venerated, they honored those who were before them. And there were Covenants, there there were uh, commandments about honoring your father and mother. There was nothing about putting your children on a pedestal. And so David, as a child, he would have called his own father Lord. And when he was a servant in Saul's court, he would have used the same title for Saul, but never as a father and certainly never as the king on Israel's throne. Could you imagine the political implications of the king of Israel calling another man Lord? Now, Jesus made his point by quoting Psalm 110. 
The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Here's another thing that everyone agreed upon. Everyone agreed that Psalm 110 was a psalm written by David, and it was written about the Messiah who would come after him. And right there in the opening line, great King David bows his poetic knee to somebody greater than himself. Now, the the psalm describes a kind of heavenly conversation between two parties, and in in our English Bibles, they're both uh, called Lord, but in the Hebrew, there are different terms behind each of those. The first Lord uh, for David was Yahweh, the great I Am, the Eternal One. The second Lord was Adonai. It's a term that's often used uh, of God himself, but also used of earthly masters, earthly lords. But what you notice about this conversation with these two parties, one Lord and another Lord, is that David himself is merely an observer. He's not standing in the midst of them. He's not adding his counsel. David is not as perhaps some Jewish interpreters might have desired for him to be, in the midst conferring together with Yahweh to help set an agenda for the Messiah who's going to come after him. He is passive. David is one bystander among a multitude of bystanders, and he is watching something unfold that surpassed any of the glory that his kingdom ever achieved. And so this uh, passage, Psalm 110, speaks of the significance of the Messiah taking his seat at the right hand of God Almighty. Uh, The right hand, of course, is the hand of power. It's the hand of authority. And in these societies, when you spoke of Uh, one person sitting at the right hand of a ruler, you were often talking about uh, the person who held the title of co-regent. That 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 meant that in in one kingdom there were two kings, two joint rulers exercising authority together over one kingdom. And what is the kingdom that is being described here? Well, this is not an earthly kingdom. This is not a Messiah who sits down beside David and says, let's rule over Israel together. Let's have this little corner of the world to be our own. This is a heavenly kingdom. This is a kingdom over creation. This is a Lord of David who who sits and shares a kingdom with Yahweh. It goes beyond what any Jew would ever apply to any human king. Isaiah 42, verse 8, the Lord had said, I am the Lord, and that is my name, and my glory I give to no other. But here's a king who's greater than David. Here's a king who reigns with God over creation. Here's a king who's seated at the right hand of Yahweh on high. Now again, this is a passage that everybody agreed on. This is something the scribes already knew. It was one of these doctrines that they'd seen probably a hundred times before. They'd read these verses. Nothing had changed, but Jesus is pushing them to re-examine their assumptions. When you read this passage, what what is the picture you have in your mind, in a sense? That's what he's asking them. He's, He's pushing them back to the scriptures and back to God's witness. When the Messiah shows up, what kind of Savior are you going to be looking for? Are you looking for an earthly king? Will you recognize him by his political power? Will you wait to see one, as most of them did, most of them were waiting for, wait to see one who comes in and drives out the foreign armies and reestablishes the glory of, uh, of the Israelite people? Is that what you're looking for? Or when the Messiah comes, is, is he going to be even greater than that? Is he going to come proclaiming something bigger than an earthly kingdom? 
When he comes, is he going to come offering peace with God and and salvation from his judgment? When the Messiah comes, is he going to make demands and is he going to receive worship and is he going to offer rewards that no human king would have a right to? Now, we have an unfair advantage in answering this, uh, this riddle that Jesus posed to the scribes. It was new, in a sense, to them. They had never considered it in quite this way before, but we have. We have have the advantage of 2,000 years of gospel hindsight. We have mountains of theology reminding us that Jesus is the one who fits this perfectly. He's the king who is God and man together. He is great David's greater son, as we like to sing. He's the Lord who reigns on high. He alone is the one who shares the glory of God the Father from eternity unto eternity. And so what was posed to them as a mystery is the foundation stone of our salvation. This isn't new to us. And yet we still have to resist the urge to to shrink Jesus down to our perceptions of him. We need to resist the urge to see Jesus as merely an earthly king or merely an earthly teacher. We also need to resist the urge to see Jesus as merely a spiritual savior. Sometimes we think that that's the corrective. Well, if he's, he didn't set up a kingdom here on earth and we don't see him reigning and so we'll just wait for all the spiritual things and we'll disconnect the spiritual things from the daily things. And he'll merely just be this little piece of what we believe him to be, of what scripture tells us about him. And so if Jesus is someone who relieves your feelings of guilt, but doesn't make demands on your daily living, you haven't really understood who he is. If Jesus is merely a teacher of earthly wisdom, if he is merely a helpful friend that you can speak with when you feel lonely, if Jesus is merely an idea that you hold on to for your eternal future and not someone that you walk with in the present, you haven't really seen who he is. And so these first verses are a challenge for us to dig deeper. The Messiah is more than an earthly king. He's Lord of the universe. He is the sovereign God over creation. And that has big implications for these other two sections that we see here. If he is really the the king over creation, then that means something. And so, beginning in verse 45, the son of David warns us about the hidden danger of hypocrisy. The Messiah is more than an earthly king, and that means that hypocrisy is worse than a selfish delusion. Our second point, that hypocrisy is worse than a selfish delusion. This is not the first time that we've encountered hypocrites and hypocrisy in the Gospels. Uh, But in these verses, we get a special sense of the vanity that's involved. Anytime we begin to perform our righteous deeds in order to be seen by others. Jesus is there in the temple, in in the courtyards around the place where all of Israel is gathered. And it's the perfect place for these scribes, for these hypocrites to strut around and show off their religious stuff for one another. Jesus had seen them already. He'd encountered them, and we've met them in the gospel, and normally he met them out in the towns in Judea, out in the villages in in the region of Galilee, and he'd meet them in ones and twos. He'd see them in groups of 
of threes, perhaps, and, and he'd go, and he knew that in every synagogue there was at least one local Jewish official, and he'd always be sitting up there at the front. You could, you could count on it. He was sitting in the best seats, he says. Now, in that situation, that meant the seat up at the front facing the congregation and not facing the Torah. That way, when the prayers were read, when they were recited, everybody else in the congregation could look at the scribes and they could see what piety and reverence was supposed to look like. They had the best seats. They loved that sort of thing. And Jesus saw them out there. He saw them in the villages, in places and settings where they really looked like something. He'd seen them pass through the marketplaces and through the streets. And, and as they passed by, everyone was duty-bound in that society. They, they had a special sense that what they had to do was to stop what they were doing and to greet them with loud benedictions. Rabbi! Hail Rabbi! They loved to be greeted like that. It's what they lived for. He'd seen them in, in places where the rabbis were ushered to sit at the head of the table, and then all the other guests tried to clamor to get close enough that they could overhear their conversation, hoping that some morsel of wisdom would pass through their lips. And Jesus had seen them out there in the villages and the towns, and in those places they were big religious fish in small social ponds. But now imagine the scene in the temple courts. All of Israel had gathered for the Passover feast, and the scribes are there in the hundreds. And how are you to know which one is the most important? How could you know which one was, was most religious? Now, maybe you could tell by the man who had the longest tassels hanging off of his garment, and they'd trail behind him as he went, and you could see him coming, and you could watch him leaving, and you could say, there's a man who, who really takes his religion seriously. Maybe it's the one who could pray the longest prayers. And they'd start off and they'd almost have a, it seemed like a competition, and they'd all start praying, and who's the last one to drop? Maybe that's the man who, who really is close to the Lord. I imagine it might have looked like one of those scenes on the nature documentaries. All the male baboons are there, and they're trying to impress all the females. And so one after another, each one puffs out their chest a little bit more and, and struts a little more impressively, hoping to one-up the guy that came before him. You know, hypocrisy always has a way of making itself visible. That's this whole point of hypocrisy, isn't it? There's no such thing as secret hypocrisy. Hypocrisy lives to be seen, it lives to be in the limelight, to be greeted, to be, uh, to be preened and noticed. And so Jesus says, beware, beware of the scribes who like to walk around in long robes. They love greetings in the marketplaces, the best seats in the synagogues, the places of honor at feasts. These are the things that get hypocrites out of the bed in the morning. It's a chance to be seen by others and taken for something special. And different. It was the opportunity to dress up your vanity in a robe of righteousness in the hopes that somebody else is going to be impressed. I think we get the sense here that Jesus isn't telling his disciples anything new. This wasn't something that, that came as a shock to them. Hypocrites always have the same sort of Effect. Probably most normal Israelites saw these pretenders coming a mile away and just rolled their eyes. There they are. 
Well, that's the thing about hypocrisy. Very often the hypocrite manages to convince themselves that their disguise is so perfect that everybody's going to mistake it for the real thing. In reality, the one who's most often taken in by the hypocrite is the hypocrite himself. And you can see it. Uh, it. It's still there today. You can flip through the cable channels on Sunday morning. And there are the porcelain smile pastors and their uh, perfectly tailored suits. And the audience for that thing is, is dwindling. You know, we're getting over the age of the televangelist, but they're still there. They're still there as though they still have some kind of veneer of credibility and they're still, uh, they're still emoting all over the stage and they're pushing their self-help mumbo-jumbo and they're making promises about prosperity that their ministries can't keep. And they think that people are being taken in. And it would all seem uh, tragically ridiculous until we remember that hypocrisy is not a victimless crime. That often there are some who are taken in. But often it's the vulnerable ones. And so in Jesus' day, he warned about the scribes who devoured widows' houses. Uh, we're not exactly sure, but it probably happened in a variety of ways. Uh, it could have been that, uh, that they encouraged gullible women to make offerings beyond their means. Offerings that left them destitute, but offerings that might have gone into the local synagogue to pay the wages of uh, the local officials. Maybe they offered to help settle an estate because, you know, they were the experts in God's law after all. Jesus had some people who tried to get him to do the same thing. Teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. Uh, Jesus wasn't here for that. Maybe those other scribes, though, they were. And so I'll help you to divide your estate. I'll, I'll help you to discern where it ought to go. And once their hand is already in the cookie jar, well, they, they swindle a little bit off to the side for themselves. They, they probably did it in a number of ways, but however they did it, they were hiding the worst kind of oppression behind this appearance of goodness. They were victimizing the most vulnerable members of society and all the while parading themselves as righteous. And you know how it goes if anybody made an accusation of wrongdoing. Well, they had a reputation, didn't they? They were pillars of the community. And if it came down to whose word you ought to listen to, the word of a widow or the word of a scribe, everybody knew who they could trust, didn't they? Well, sadly, there are headlines enough to convince us that this temptation hasn't evaporated in 2,000 years. Sadly, there are still predators hiding among God's sheep. They love to make themselves look righteous. They love to make themselves look innocent. They love to make themselves look plausibly trustworthy if only they can get close enough to the vulnerable members of the flock. And it's a call to discernment, I think. It's a warning not to be gullible in the church. It's a call that we need to keep a close, compassionate eye on those who are defenseless among us. Those who could be easily devoured by these wolves in sheep's clothing. Well, of course, not every Christian leader is a monster, <laughs> thankfully. And, and not every hypocrite, actually, is out to steal somebody's retirement fund. But once you know how hypocrisy works in the human heart, you know that it always trends in this direction. It always trends in the direction of victimizing the vulnerable. Hypocrisy is always an attempt at fooling others into giving you what you think you need from them. 
So sure, one, one hypocrite wants money and another hypocrite wants sex. But another hypocrite wants respectability in the home. And another hypocrite wants responsibility in the church. And another hypocrite wants admiration, and another one wants gossip, and another one simply wants to fit in with that group of Christians that look like they've got their lives so well put together. And it's one hypocrite trying to get in with other hypocrites. And once you learn what you really want from other people, you can learn how to present yourself to get those things. You can learn how to show just what ought to be seen in order to get for yourself what God has withheld from you. And this is how hypocrisy works. That's the direction that it trends, and in the end, it leads to destruction. Beware the scribes, said Jesus, because they will receive the greater condemnation. In other words, hypocrisy is worse than mere selfish delusion. It carries punishment with it. It opens the hypocrite to the all-seeing righteousness of God's judgment. And on the day when the Lord makes the enemies of the Messiah a footstool for his feet, Jesus says that it's the pretenders who are going to be the most severely judged. It's those who know better and yet continue the deception anyway for their own gain who are going to bear the wrath of the Lamb. And it's a warning here. Not only to be on our guard against the the hypocrites who are around us, who are maybe in our midst, and we're never sure where they might be, it's also a warning against the hypocrisy that tempts your own heart. Outward appearances can only get us so far. The Messiah is more than an earthly king, and that means that hypocrisy is worse than a selfish delusion, and it also means that faithfulness is better than religious gestures. Faithfulness is better than religious gestures. In chapter 21, we learn that Jesus looked up and he saw the rich putting their gifts into the offering box. That's the sort of thing that you noticed in those days. Not so much for us. Even when we passed the plate, even pre-COVID, when we could uh, handle something and give it to somebody else, we know how to do it with a little bit of discretion. And so everybody writes their offering on their check and they fold it blank side out and they slip it in among uh, the other uh, nondescript slips of paper and nobody's the wiser and nobody knows who's given more and who's given less. And in many churches, the offering plates are are padded and lined with felt. So even if the children want to add a dime or a nickel, it doesn't disturb the offertory. And nobody knows. It was different in Jesus' day. In Jesus' day, if you were going to give an offering at the temple, uh, you would put it into one of 13 large collection boxes that were in uh, the courtyards, and you would choose a different collection box depending on where you wanted your funds to go. Uh, So one box was set aside to provide what was needed for daily worship, for sacrifices, for for showbread, all sorts of things. Another box was set aside for decorating the temple building up the gold on the mercy seat or, or the decorations, that, uh, that vine that hung outside the entrance. Most of the boxes, more than half of them, uh, were set aside for the help of the poor. But on each of the 13 boxes was a large brass spout. I don't have a better word for it than spout. Uh, but it was shaped like a trumpet. It was wide on the bottom. It was narrow at the top to keep greedy fingers out. But it was just big enough to accept coins. It was made of brass. And so making your offering was as easy as pouring your money into the opening, but there wasn't a whole lot of privacy there. 
not a whole lot of discretion. And when the really rich patrons came by and they, uh, they put their extravagant gifts in there, the temple resonated with this uh, satisfying clang of metal on metal. It sounded like somebody pulling a jackpot in Vegas. And everybody could see it, and Jesus could probably hear it from across the courtyard. It was the kind of thing that drew a lot of attention. Extravagant gifts always draw a lot of attention. We want to mark them, and we, we want to see them, and we want to remember them. And so the, the small Baptist church where I grew up as a child had, uh, had stained glass windows along the outside of the worship space, and under each one was a plaque dedicating it to the memory of somebody I had never met. And we want to remember these things. We want to mark these extravagant gifts. And the same thing goes for the library at your alma mater or for that, uh, that nature preserve that was bequeathed to your town by somebody's rich estate centuries ago, and everybody's forgotten their name, but for the granite block that sits there to tell you that this came from so-and-so, and we want to see those things. And we're always impressed by those who give extravagantly. There in the temple, Jesus noticed something better. It says when the rich folk gave uh, their large offerings, Jesus noticed a poor widow dropping two small copper pennies into the spout. They weren't much. In fact, they were laughably small compared to what others were giving, and probably when she dropped them in, they barely made a plink against the brass. But in the eyes of the Savior, it was a beautiful offering. It was this sacrifice of praise. We should mention here that Jesus doesn't say anything negative in this passage about the people who were able to give larger offerings. He doesn't say that it's better to give a little than it is to give a lot. I suppose it might have become a form of hypocrisy for some people, but Jesus isn't comparing outward amounts. He's not just putting these in a spreadsheet. Jesus is making a comparison, not between good gifts and bad gifts, but between Some who gave much and one who gave more. And the widow gave more than all of them, all together. She didn't give mathematically more, but she gave sacrificially more. And so verse 4 tells us that they all contribute out of their abundance, but she, out of her poverty, put in all she had to live on. Now scholars wrap their their minds uh, around this. They wrap themselves in knots trying to figure out how did Jesus know. Uh, How did he know that she was a widow? Where did he get the idea that these two copper coins were all that he had? But it's not a mystery. Jesus knew this woman's finances the same way he knew that Judas was going to betray him. The same way he knew that that Samaritan woman would already uh, worked through five failed marriages. She's spoiling for number six. The Messiah is more than an earthly king. It's not a mystery how he knows these things. He's the Lord who sees beyond outward appearance. He's the one who sees what man does not. And the Lord knows this woman. He knows her accounts and he knows her income and he knows her heart of service to the Father. He knows the kind of faith this woman had to have in order to toss her two last pennies into the collection box. And he knew it wasn't a gift under compulsion. She wasn't like the scribes just trying to impress other people. It was a gift, committing herself and committing her future and committing all her earthly possessions to the service of the Lord. As we think back on some of the things that Christ has 
taught us in Luke's gospel, we realize that this is the kind of daily, normal, radical discipleship that Jesus has been pressing all of his followers toward. Here is a woman who put her hand to the plow and did not look back. Here's a woman, by God's grace, who renounced all that she had, even though she didn't have much. Here's a woman who gave all that she had, perhaps to to help the poor, certainly to go to the work of the Lord. Here's a woman who was less concerned with what she could gain from other people than with what she was able to give to the Lord. I think Jesus is teaching us that, that that kind of faithfulness is better than a whole mountain of grand outward religious gestures. Her sacrificial gift was heavier than all the buckets of gold that the rich dumped into those collection boxes. And it's an encouragement, I think. An encouragement to quiet and faithful service to the Lord. Wherever he's placed you, whatever earthly gifts he's put into your charge, the Savior notices the sacrifices that no one else sees. He sees every gift given. He hears every prayer prayed. He knows every faithful moment offered as a sacrifice for him. Well, the Messiah is more than an earthly king. And it has implications for us. It means that hypocrisy is worse than a delusion. It means that faithfulness is better than gestures. And faithfulness is what our Lord delights in. It's what he calls us to. And by the grace of his spirit, it's what he produces in his people. Let's pray together. Oh Lord, our God, we pray that you would make us faithful followers of you. Help us not to live by sight, but by faith. Help us to walk as you call us to. Help us to give ourselves and our possessions and our lives, our desires and our children into the service of your kingdom. Help us, O Lord, to be committed. Cleanse us from hypocrisy. Cleanse us from the desire to be seen as something we are not. Keep us, O Lord, clinging to you. Thank you for your salvation offered. Thank you that you are seated at the right hand of the Father on high, interceding for your faithful people. Make us, O Lord, to walk with you until that day when every one of your enemies, even death itself, becomes a footstool for your feet. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.